All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's great to see you this morning. I am glad that you're here uh, to celebrate Easter with us. We are going to be in First Peter in, in just a second, but it is great to see everyone. I love the energy in the room because uh, we knew that, that when we had two services, we normally have one at 10 o'clock, and then we decided a couple of weeks ago, we said, well, we'll have two services. Uh, and it's good that we did, I think, because the kids are already down in kids' church and both services were pretty full this morning. And, uh, but we, we knew, you know, chances are, uh, one service was just going to, the people in the service were going to be a better group of people than the other service. That just happens. Right. And I just want to thank you because you're clapping and worshiping and it looks like you've been awake for a couple of hours already, which was great. And so thanks for doing that. Cause that, you know, that nine o'clock group was, I mean, tired and sleepy and it was, it was tough, but uh, do me a favor. Don't ask the nine o'clock people what I said about you and, uh, and just take that for what it is. And uh, Joe, you happy, buddy? Are you happy walking in this morning? You are happy. Yeah, I had a feeling you would be happy. I got to tell you, Joe, for any, his company plastered this whole building when we renovated a couple of, of years ago. And uh, over oh, eight, nine years ago now, when we renovated this building, his company plastered every wall. And Joe did one of the most Italian things I've ever seen in my life. He came in here and he had this briefcase and uh, he set it up on this stage and it had these gold plated tools in it that I could tell no one other than Joe gets to touch. And he plastered this wall uh, with like this like marble plaster, bits of marble in it. And he made this beautiful wall and we had it for the first couple of years. Some of you are like, wow, they redid the wall. The rest of you are like, they brought back the wall, right? And, uh, and a couple of years ago, I hung a black curtain over the wall and I might as well just hung a black curtain over my relationship with Joe and his entire family. Uh, but now it's, it's here. It is perfect for Easter, right? Isn't it great? So Joe is celebrating two resurrections today, and I won't ask you which one is more valuable, all right? It is good to be in worship. You know, um, I was going to ask Andrew if you're, if you're able to help me grab those tables. My wife and I, Lori and I, we have this, we have three children. There are 11, 8, and 4, and um, we have this pantry off of our kitchen, and there's this pantry door, and in the pantry, we have a few different things. Uh, in the pantry, we have uh, like the kids' crafts. A lot of the kids' crafts are in the pantry. Uh, the Play-Doh is in the pantry. Um, uh, their books are in the pantry. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Sam. Oh, boy. You'll get it. I'll tell you about the Play-Doh. We got the Play-Doh in the pantry. We got the crafts in the pantry. We have colors in the pantry. Uh, all sorts of good stuff in the pantry. Let me tell you what else we have in the pantry. This is, I'm, stick with me for a second. Stick with me. They'll get it. They'll get it. They got it. See? They'll get it. All right. In the pantry, we've got the kids' crafts, the Play-Doh, the colors, everything. We also have in the pantry uh, good snacks. Like when the kids get home from school and they, and they need a snack, we have, we have the good snacks in the, in the pantry. Uh, pretzels are fine, right? Some goldfish, something like that. But also in the pantry, the pantry is full of temptation because the pantry also has, whenever we get like super fancy chocolate as a gift, it goes in the pantry. When the kids go out on Halloween, all that candy goes in the pantry. Everything that's gathered together over our Easter celebrations will be all collected and go into the pantry. And so when you open up the pantry door, you can have a wide variety of motivations for why you're opening that door. And when Lori and I are sitting there uh, in the kitchen and we see one of our 
children open that door, we're immediately concerned about their motivation. And you know what this is like. You see people do things, and you, and you ask yourself, why are they doing that? What is their motivation? Sometimes I'll say you know, to my four-year-old Nora, I'll say, Nora, why are you going in the pantry? And she'll say, well, I just want to play Play-Doh. All right, great. You want to play Play-Doh? Sometimes uh, she'll go to open that door, and I'll say, Nora, why are you going in the pantry? And she'll kind of look at me and smile and say something like, don't worry about it. <laughs> then I have even more questions about why this is happening. And I think all of us know what that's like. You know what it's like to see people do things and wonder why they're doing them, to wonder what the motivation is behind that. And I'm well aware that within our room, there's probably those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. And some of you that don't yet call yourself a follower of Jesus, with those of you that are watching us online, probably the same situation. And I bet uh, if, you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've experienced this before, where because we're followers of Jesus, there's certain things that God calls us to do and calls us to live a certain way. And people that aren't follower of Jesus, they, followers of Jesus, they see that and they're constantly questioning our motivation. Like, why would we live like that? Why would we do that? Why would we take what is the most relaxing and, and potentially productive time of the week that is Sunday morning to relax and have a nice breakfast and get things done around the house and fix the yard? Why would we take that time and put it into gathering together in what uh, to some people feels like the most unproductive place in the world, which is a church sanctuary? Why would we spend that, that time? And why would we, would we call ourselves to live to what to many seems like an outdated code of morality and ethics? Why would Christians do that? Why would they live that way? And I bet even those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, we're not going to raise our hand and admit it in the middle of church, but we ask similar questions. Like, why, why are we supposed to do that again? Why do we have to live that way? Why does, why does God ask us to, to do that? And this morning, I want to take some time and look at a passage in 1 Peter, as Justin said, where, where we get an, an answer and a reminder toward our motivation. For those of you who aren't followers of Jesus that wonder why followers of Jesus do some of the things they do, Peter reminds us of that. And for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, but if you're like me from time to time, I just need to be reminded why it is that we're supposed to do those things, why it is that God calls us to certain things, why it is that Jesus says that his followers will live a certain way. And so in this passage in 1 Peter, we get our reminders of that. And here's what Peter writes. And he, Peter is writing to the very early church. And he's writing to people that are under, under real severe persecution for their beliefs. So they're believing and following something that is not popular within their culture. And I think for those of us who live not only in this country, but in this part of this country, we kind of know what that's like. Try and live something that, that is not a part of the popular culture. So Peter writes to the early church, but he writes to you as well. Therefore, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as, as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, 
Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see in that passage, uh, Peter calling us to live the way God calls us to live. In fact, he says that we are to be holy as God is holy. And that is a quote from a book uh, called Leviticus that's early on in the Bible, where God's saying, you're supposed to be as pure as I am in the way that you act and behave. And Peter reminds us, that's what God calls us to. But the question is why? What's the motivation for that? What's the reason for that? Why is it that we're supposed to follow this? Why would we bet our entire lives that this is true? Before we answer that, I think we have to back up a little bit and get a, a, a little bit of a larger picture of what we're all dealing with. There's this thing that, I, that all of us have a sense of. I know I feel it. I think you feel it. In fact, I don't think I've met anyone that doesn't feel this. I think some people are more optimistic about it, some people more pessimistic about it, and yet every single person I've ever met feels this way. And that is that this world around us, the world in which we live, is not the way it's supposed to be. And it should be better. I don't really know anyone that doesn't agree with that statement. Like I said, I think some people are more optimistic about it, some people more pessimistic, but I think everybody feels this. That the world is not the way it's supposed to be and it should be better. I think what it takes is every single time there's something like that school shooting in Nashville, every single time something like that hits our headlines. In fact, the sad reality of our world is that not all those things hit the headlines in the same way because they're happening too often. And every single time we see something like that, whether it's a school shooting or the war in Ukraine or, or tornadoes ripping through the middle of our country or things that are happening around the world, all of us have this sense that the world's not the way it's supposed to be and it should be better. I don't know anyone that doesn't. The division in politics, the injustices that happen in this world, all of us have this sense. And Peter in this passage brings up a word that, that speaks exactly to what it is that we all desire. It's in verse 18 of this passage. And the Greek word that, that Peter uses is called lutron. The form of it in this verse is lutro, in case anyone's real technical out there and wants to catch me on that. But, but the, the root word is lutron. And Lutron is translated in scripture. It's mentioned in the New Testament a number of times. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, you find this word, word over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament when it's written in Greek. The word is translated uh, one of two ways. It's translated either ransomed, as it is in, in the version that we're using here this morning, the ESV. But if you're sitting there with the NIV or another version, your Bible may say redeemed. 
And regardless of whatever way it's translated, the word itself in Greek means the same thing. And even the terms ransomed and redeemed point to the same reality. That that is, there are things that are being held captive, that there are things caught in a state where uh, ways they should not be, and they have a need to be freed from that state. And the other thing that's tied up in this idea of ransom and redeemed is that there needs to be some sort of payment or action in order for that freedom to take place. And this is what I think we we feel in our world. That things aren't the way they're supposed to be and they should be better. And what we need is something that will bring about ransom or redemption in the world around us so that it, it makes the world the way it's supposed to be. I was trying to think about where we find this word redemption in our, in our culture. And I think a lot of our movies, we would call them redemption stories. We like that in our movies and books. But one place I thought is, is that we have uh, in front of many of our grocery stores and definitely in front of my favorite store, Costco, we have redemption centers, Right? And redemption centers are there for all your cans and bottles that you can bring them and you can redeem them. And then they give you one of these if you redeem that can or bottle. They give you a nickel. Now they make it seem like you're getting a nickel that you didn't have before, but that is not the case. If you bought the can or bottle yourself, they already took this nickel from you. And now I have not done a lot of research on this. I don't know who's holding the nickel captive, right? But somebody at the state house has a room full of these nickels and is guarding them and is saying to us, if you want to see your nickel again, this is what's going to happen, right? They're sending us letters. They're cutting out letters out of magazines and pasting them on paper and sending them to us. We have your nickel. And if you want your nickel again, this is what it's going to take. You need to take your can and you need to put it in a trash bag and you need to keep it in your basement for four to six months until you have a bunch of cans. And then you need to spend a half an hour feeding those into a machine. And when you're done with that, we'll give you your nickel back, right? That's what Peter's talking about when we talked about redemption. Something is being held captive and there has to be action or payment in order for it to be redeemed. And that's how we are in our world. And we all feel it. That we're held captive in a sense in a world that just is is not right. And we long to be freed from that. What I want to suggest to you this morning, when we talk about motivations for action, I want to suggest to you this morning that many, if not all, of our big actions in life are motivated by what we think will bring about that redemption. That most of our actions in life, in fact, I would say the, like the big actions in life are motivated by what we believe will bring about a better world and a better place, either for us as individuals or for the whole. In fact, so many of our actions are based on what, we're, what we feel like we're being pushed from and what we're being pulled toward. Well, what the life that we wish we didn't have toward the life that we wish we had. 
Our actions are pushed in that way. It's like, a, it's like a parent that's trying to create a better reality for their child, that they're being pushed from this life that they had to live, that they don't want their children to have to face, and they're being pulled toward a better reality for the next generation. And so then the actions that take place in their life are to help push from that and pull toward that better reality. It's like when you have that appointment with your doctor and your doctor says something that you need to change in your behavior in order to have a healthier reality, you're being pushed from the reality you're in and pulled towards a better future. And if you believe that that's true, then it will shape and affect your actions. And I think there's all these things that we see in our culture that we are trying to put our energy and time into because we think that these are the things that are going to push us out of the reality that we're in and pull us into the better reality. And so they affect our actions. And there's no possible way that we could sit here this morning and go through all of them. And every single one of these things is different for you as individuals. But as I think about culture as a whole, there's a few things that stand out to me. You know, one is, for some of us, it's possessions, isn't it? And I got to tell you, I I feel like possessions uh, is, is too simple of a one, like almost too obvious. Like, yeah, some people think if they have more stuff, they'll be happier. It's not true. And I know that's not true, But I got to tell you, I know for myself and I know for so many people around me, we constantly get into the idea that if the car was a little newer and the house was a little nicer and the salary was a little bit bigger, then all this emptiness and challenge that I'm feeling would would be better. And we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people and saying, well, their life looks so much better because they're wearing that watch or because they have that much money. And regardless of the fact that this one seems so simple, There's a lot of us as individuals that say, all right, I'm taking all my eggs, right? And if I'm going to put them in one basket, I'm going to put them in this basket. This is the kind of thing that will take me from the reality that I'm in and push me out of that and pull me to something better. But that's not the only place that we see that, right? It's not just in possessions that we see that, and I know everyone can't see that, but in positions too. I think that many people, especially in our area, Boston, Massachusetts, are motivated by positions. They take all their eggs and they say, I'm going to put them in these bas- this basket here. And this is the basket. If I can just achieve to the right amount, if I can get the degree that has the letters that impress the right amount of people, or if I can get the job that has the right letters that impress people, or if I can continue to move up and I can be in charge and I can have a team, if I could do all of these things, if I could reach a certain position in life, then I would finally get rid of this feeling that things are broken and things are off and that I would be made whole. So certainly it's possessions and it's positions, but it's also people. I think many of us feel like if we could just get the right people in our lives, like right now we feel empty, but if my eyes could just meet with someone else's eyes across a dimly lit room, everything would be perfect. If, 
if I could just, you know, fix my family, if I could, if I could just try hard enough to get everyone on the same page and reconcile all the relationships, uh, if we could get the right people in place in different positions, if I, if I had the right friends or if I had more friends or if I had more followers or if I had less followers, if I could just get people right, then it, it would take me from this place of, of emptiness and loneliness to a place of fulfillment. Those aren't the only things that we try that I could think of. We try this one, education. I might need more education because I tried my very best to come up with a P word for education. <laughs> and I could not do it. Pedagogy, maybe. P philosophy, I thought, but that didn't work. But education, we think if we just continue to grow in our knowledge of things, and listen, it's not anti-education, nor is it anti-science. I think both of those things have some amazing results. But there is this idea that, that we're going to finally achieve a, to a point where we can wrap our minds around the universe. And when we understand all of these things and why they happen and where they come from and how to fix every problem that's there in the end of the, of the universe, um, then, then we will finally have reached a place where we will be able to fix the world. That we'll be able to figure it all out. Everything will be the way it's supposed to be. And certainly in the part of the, this country that we live in Boston, I feel like this one's a little bit heavier than many other places in our world as well. One last one that I can think of, and I know you can come up with your own. I think this is a big one. It's policy. I mean, is this not the fights of the last five years in our country? If we can just get policy right, then everything will be better. All we need to do is fix the policies. We get policies and people in the right positions, then it will all be fixed. I mean, it's just, it's the fights of the last five years, but isn't this the fight of the last 500 years? The last 5,000 years? That if we can just get government and law in place, like if we put all our eggs in that basket, I don't know, it seems like for Christians, this is a big one too. Like if we just get all our eggs in that basket and, and get it correct, that it will fix the world around us. By the way, some people get to the point that they don't think anything can ransom or redeem us. Maybe you tried all these things and they didn't work. When you get to the point that you don't think we're able to be ransomed or redeemed. That's a place of losing hope, being hopeless. I think what happens when you get to that place is you either live in despair or decadence. You either live for no moment or you live just in the moment. And if you're in that place where you've lost the idea that we can be ransomed, that we can be redeemed, my biggest prayer for you this morning is that you will be reignited with hope that it can happen. Peter says there's problems with all of these. With things like policy, education, people, possessions, positions, or I don't know what you'd write on these cards. 
You probably have something different, probably something better. Peter says there's a problem with these. He says they don't work. And they don't work for a couple of reasons. The biggest reasons Peter says they don't work is because the thing that is captive cannot free itself. We would never give our nickel for the bottle deposit and then say to the nickel, nickel, if you want to be freed, you figure it out. You're going to be held captive and you're going to go some room on Beacon Hill. I don't know where they keep them, but you're going to, you got to figure it out how you're going to be freed. We would never say that. And Peter says, what makes you think that you can figure out how to free yourself because you're the nickel. You're the one who's stuck. You're the one who's held captive in a broken world. So what makes you think that you can be uh, smart enough or ingenious enough to figure out a way to free yourself from this reality in which you are stuck? Peter uses a word. He says, none of this is new. He says in verse 18 there, he says, these are the futile ways of your forefathers. They all tried this. I don't care. Look at any culture, any generation throughout history. They are trying these things to fix the world around them and it's never worked before. And yet we think, well, maybe we can do it. Maybe we can figure it out. Maybe we can make it right. And then it will all be the way it's supposed to be. But Peter says, don't try those futile ways. They don't work. And the other thing that Peter says, you know why these things don't work? Because they're perishable. None of these things work. And if you try them, all you're going to find out is that they don't last, that they're no good. Peter says, none of these things last. They're all a part of the world that you're trying to redeem. Yeah, I wish I had bigger tables. But maybe it helps the illustration, I don't know. He says they're perishable things. What Peter says to us in this passage and what followers of Jesus believe is true is that if the world is going to be redeemed, Something outside this world has to pay the price for that redemption. You can't have something perishable and futile in this world paying the price for that redemption. You need something outside of this world that will pay the price for that redemption. And that is why Peter in this verse says that you have been ransomed or you have been redeemed, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ that is like of a lamb without blemish or spot. And he says, do you know how you know you can put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ? Because he has been raised from the dead. So often we look at that, at that reality of Jesus being raised from the dead. And we say to ourselves, what an amazing story of Jesus being ransomed. He was held captive in the tomb and then he was ransomed from the tomb. What an amazing story of redemption. Jesus was killed by those people and then he was redeemed. I remember uh, thinking... Uh, seeing a sign a couple of years ago. Do you remember some of you that are, that are sports fans from New England? I know some of you aren't, but just stick with me for a moment. 
uh, you remember the, the story that you remember a couple of years ago, the Patriots were down 23, 28 to 3 in the third quarter of the Super Bowl against the Atlanta Falcons. And they came back and they won that game, right? Top, top five days of, of my life, okay? And I won't say, I won't say which one because I got married and had three kids, but top five, all right? And I saw a church sign that Easter that said something like, you know, uh, the Patriots had a great comeback. Come hear about the greatest comeback story. And I, I liked that sign. I thought that was a cool sign and, and a way to invite people to church for Easter. But as I was preparing this message, I thought about that sign. The resurrection is not a comeback story. It's not Jesus' comeback story, at least. It's not his comeback story. Peter says it in these verses. He was created before the foundations of the world. He was, he was there, I mean, before the foundations of the world. And he's there in all eternity, creating the place that you and I are called to go, pulling us toward that reality in eternity. It's not his comeback story. The death and resurrection was the plan all along to redeem those who were lost, to redeem those of us who were held captive by a broken, sinful world. And the reality is we often don't understand the weight of our sin and our turning from God and how that affects the brokenness of the world, that everything that we see and experience, every time we sense that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, and we read the headline, and we get the diagnosis, and the relationship goes bad, and we say to ourselves, things are not the way they're supposed to be. It's not Jesus's comeback story in the resurrection. It's your comeback story in the resurrection. It's you being set free. It's you being ransomed by Jesus and his spilling of his blood on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That gives us proof that not only is Jesus the one in whom you should put all the eggs into that basket, but Peter's saying you should take all this other stuff. Put all that in Jesus's basket. You want the world to be redeemed? Our work injustice, government, all of these things. Peter says, no, 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 take everything in this world, put it into Jesus's hands. Let him be the one who is in charge of redeeming and restoring because he is the one who was raised from dead to new life. So take everything you've got, Peter says, and put it in his basket and then take everything that you have and put that in Jesus's care. So why do Christians do all this weird stuff? Because we believe that this is true. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not his redemption story. It's our redemption story. That it's him making all things new. A couple of years ago, Pastor Rick, who's our senior pastor at Mount Hope, pastor of our Burlington campus, we were talking with the rabbi who has a synagogue across the street from the church in Burlington. She's awesome, Rabbi, Sarah, uh, rabbi Abramson. And uh, she said to us, she said, did Jesus see himself as a redeemer? Or did people just put that on him after the fact? It's a good question. She said, because it seems to me like when I read New Testament passages and I, like they're all written after Jesus was here. All those letters, P 
Peter's letter, and, and then Christians throughout the centuries have continued to put this on Jesus. And it seems to me like Jesus was teaching, and then after the fact, people just put this mantle on him of him being redeemer. But Jesus absolutely saw himself as redeemer. one time where he's sitting with his disciples and he says this in Matthew 20. He says, the son of man, that's him, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a lutron, to give his life as a ransom, to give his life as a redemption for many, for you. If you, have, if you are stuck in that place where you wish this world was different than it is and you're wondering what it is that creates the world the way it should be, it is through Jesus Christ who promises that one day he will truly make all things new. And if you're here, brother and sister in Christ, and you have lost heart and you have lost hope, and you have gone to some of these other things to try to find the redemption you're looking for, let me remind you today that it comes through Christ alone. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come forward this morning as we close and invite you, if you would, just to bow your head and close your eyes and let's pray together. God, we thank you. Thank you that even though we're held captive by this world, we're held captive by a broken place. That God, you have not left us on our own. But Lord, you have sent your son to provide the payment, the ransom, the redemption for our sin and for all the brokenness that is in this world, that we might be made new, that the world around us might be made new. And we thank you, Lord, for that truth. And Lord, I pray for the person today who has never experienced that truth before. God, I pray that today, as they reach out to you and call on your name, that they would experience through your Holy Spirit what it means to be redeemed in a new life in Jesus Christ. For those of us who experienced it a long time ago, and as we look at the world around us and the things that happen, we start to lose heart. God, strengthen us today. Would we be reminded and rejoice that our God, our Savior is not dead, he is alive. And his victory over death shows that he is the one with power to make all things new. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us and let's close this morning. Celebrate.